Today on Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. There's none before Christ. There's not beyond Christ. There's nothing without Christ. Less than Jesus will not work. More than Jesus is not possible. He's the first and the last. What a beautiful description of the Lord Jesus. He's the first and the last. He's the creator of all things, and he's the one who will bring all of history to a screeching halt at a second coming. Like most Christians, you've probably had times when you've struggled to find the motivation to worship God. Well, today on Know the Truth, we'll discover that once we begin to comprehend Jesus in all His glory, we're inspired to worship Him with the reverence and respect He deserves. We're glad you've joined us for another study in the book of Revelation. Yesterday, we were challenged to think about the way we uphold and revere Jesus. Today, Philip concludes this message called Holy Terror. If you missed previous segments, you can listen online at ktt.org or with our app. Here's Pastor Philip. John encounters Christ, and he begins to describe him for us. Verse 15 of chapter 1 of the book of the Revelation, come with me to it. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. John is turning our thoughts towards Christ as the judge of sin. Brass is often associated with judgment. We want to turn to Exodus 38, verse 30. The brazen altar at the tabernacle in the temple where the offerings for sin were burned was made of what? Brass and brass feet. I think here speak of the fact that Jesus is going to judge and subdue sin. Jesus is amidst the candlesticks, amidst the church, and his focus is on judging sin among his people disciplining his churches, calling his churches to renewed obedience and and, and better service and purer motives. And verse 15 again, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Not spend a lot of time here, but there's a, a thought you and I want to get. John is revealing the absolute authority of Christ, that his voice ought to drown out any other voice. And that must have had a special meaning to John. Here he is in exile on the Isle of Patmos. And there wouldn't have been a day when he wouldn't have heard the waters crashing against the caves and the coastline of the little island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. The sound of the waters roaring. And he was being reminded that when Christ speaks, he must listen. And here we have these letters going out to the churches and the images the church has got to listen. Christ is speaking and he's got the voice of many waters. And when uh, he had in his right hand seven stars, verse 16, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. That's a present participle, means out of his mouth constantly, all the time went the two-edged sword. What's the image? I think the image is of uh, Christ's pronouncement of judgment upon his church's enemies inside and outside. The sword is a weapon of offense and points to decisive action against those who oppose his will. I want you to notice something. It's two-edged. It's not only sharp. It smites the nations. It's two-edged. 
In what way might we say it's two-edged? Well, it's interesting when Paul speaks of sharing the gospel, which always includes the presentation of the word, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 15 through 16, we read that to some it's a fragrance of death and to others it's a fragrance of life. And sadly, that's the ministry of God's word. Some people it brings to life and other people it brings judgment to. The same sun that melts the snow caps hardens the clay. The same gospel that brings life to some brings death and judgment to others who continue to reject that word of mercy. Ninthly and finally here, we have um, this picture of Christ shining as the noonday sun. Verse 16, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. See, remember when Christ was on earth, his glory was veiled, okay? Before he took on flesh, he was spirit, he was God, and he shone like the sun, and the angels covered their faces without being able to look at him. He came among men, and he hid his glory. It shone through once in a while, especially on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's almost like Christ is this bright light, and in his incarnation, there's like a lamp shade that goes over his glory. That's why men made a mistake. That's why Paul says, had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But he didn't look like the Lord of glory. He looked like the carpenter's son. He looked like Mary's boy. But now uh, his humiliation and his incarnation is over. He has carried his our humanity to the throne, and now the glory has been restored. And John can hardly look at him when once he lay on his breast around supper. According to Revelation 22, verse 5, there shall no longer be any night in heaven, and they shall not have need of the lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illuminate them. There'll be no sun in heaven, no light in heaven from the sun. Christ is the light. His glory, his affluence is so brilliant and so mesmerizing that he will light it heaven itself. We've all seen pictures, haven't we, of atomic tests and men standing miles and miles away with dark goggles on, viewing the blast of deadly brilliance. Oh, that we would appreciate the radiance of the risen Christ. Before we move to the next a couple of questions. Is this the Christ you see when you close your eyes? Is this the Christ you come to worship on a Sunday morning? Is this the Christ who regulates your behavior during the week, high and lifted up, commanding and demanding? Do you know what? We need a new revelation of the Christ of revelation. This is not the Christ of consumer Christianity. This is not the Christ of non-lordship salvation. This is not the Christ of the seeker-sensitive movement. But it is the Christ who one walks amidst the candlesticks. We live in a day that majors on relevance and minors on reverence. And yet you and I need to come before this vision of Christ more than we have and get a sense of God's greatness and Christ's glory. Because if you listen to the average evangelical sermon and participate in the average evangelical worship service, you would think that God is a campfire rather than a consuming fire. Isaiah 8, verse 13, you know what it says? Let the Lord be your dread. 
The dread of God, the fear of God, which is clean and wholesome, has left the church. No longer is the sense of God's majesty. No longer do we fall prostrate on our faces like John or Peter, who said, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. John MacArthur used to tell us a story at the Master's Seminary of a friend of his who boasted of his intimacy with Jesus that Jesus and him were good buds. Sometimes, in fact, Jesus would come in while he was shaving in his bathroom. MacArthur said, literally? The guy said, yeah, literally. He comes in his body. What does he do? The friend said, he just puts his arm on my shoulder when I'm shaving. And John said, what do you do? And the guy said, I still go on shaving. To which John replied, then that's not Jesus. How true. It's not the Jesus of the book of the Revelation. We not only have Jesus' deity, we have John's depravity. Why is John prostrate? Because of who Christ is. And in the light of who Christ is, John comes to see who he is, and there's no comparison. John feels his depravity, his smallness, his sinfulness before Christ. Listen to me, folks. For John that day, Jesus was too much. Now, there's a thought, isn't it? Jesus too much? Not the Jesus I know. I can cozy up to him and chat with him. I can worship him any way I want. And John goes, that's not the Christ I know. It's not the Christ I saw on Patmos. When I saw his loftiness, I understood my lowliness. The average evangelical saunters through a service like a mohawk along a strand of scaffolding who has long forgotten their danger. I've always been fascinated by those pictures. In fact, uh, one of my girls, I think, or maybe it was my sister, bought me one of those where you see the the Mohawks sitting on a scaffold. Uh, um, Maybe, you know, I don't know what it is, 5,000 feet off the ground working on one of those skyscrapers in New York. You've seen pictures of them, haven't you? Walking along those things like they're just walking the sidewalk. And you go, have these guys forgot the danger they're in? And yet that is how sometimes we worship. I think we've forgotten the danger we're in. I mean, the Bible says no man can see God and live. In fact, you and I cannot worship God apart from the righteousness of Christ and the forgiveness that comes through his grace. Which brings us, thankfully, to this second thought. John is overwhelmed by mercy. Here he is, prostrate, with his face to the dirt, not even daring to look up, acting like he's stone cold dead. And in a wonderful twist, the voice of many waters whispers, don't be afraid. The great I am was the gracious I am. The hand that had touched the face of a leper, the hand that had patted the head of children while he was on earth, touched John and told him not to be afraid. And it's beautiful because the point not to be missed here is that Jesus appeared unto John not to scare the dickens out of him, but to embolden him and assure him through the unveiling of his divine power and majesty that all was well. The little flock of Christ being devoured by the wolves of the world, was still under the care of the chief and the great shepherd. And if God be for us, who can be against us? 
And the whole point of this vision, as glorious and threatening as it was, was that this one who stood among them also stood for them and against those who opposed them. Some of them were losing their lives. Look at chapter 2 and verse 10, the church at Smyrna. What do we read? Do not fear. This is the theme to be picked up. John, don't be afraid. All this sovereignty, all this power, all this glory is bent to the benefit of my people. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days, but be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Some of them had already lost their lives. According to chapter 2 and verse 13, we're told about a faithful martyr by the name of Antipas. What does Jesus say? And you hold fast to my name and do not deny your faith, even in the days of Antipas, who was my faithful martyr and who was killed among you. Death stalked the early church. They were frightened. They were small. They were overwhelmed. But Jesus wants them to be overwhelmed, not by man, but by God this glorious vision we have of him in Revelation 1. And he doesn't want them to be fearful of death because Jesus goes on to tell John here what in verse 17, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and of death. What a beautiful description of the Lord Jesus. He's the first and the last. He's the creator of all things, and he's the one who will bring all of history to a screeching halt at a second coming. There's none before Christ. There's not beyond Christ. There's nothing without Christ. Other than Christ will not do. Less than Jesus will not work. More than Jesus is not possible. He's the first and the last. And he is the one who lives but who was dead, but now alive forevermore. He's the living one. What does John say in 1 John 5 verse 11? He who has the son has life. He who has not the son does not have life. He's the first and the last. He's the living one. And he holds the keys to death and Hades. What do we read in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14? That Christ always leads us in triumph. That's the message that comes to these churches. They're about to see how Christ leads the charge to the end of history and brings all the kingdoms under his rule. That helps stiffen them and steal them for suffering. It helps them continue to serve. It gives value to their losses. They need not fear either death or domitian. Heaven was home. Jesus was king. Death was gain. They were on the winning side. Which brings us to this last thought. John overtaken by ministry. The next thing that happens is that John is told to rise and write. Look at verse 19. Write the things which you have seen. Write the things which you have seen. I want the church to get this vision. And he was to carry this glorious and victorious message to the seven churches of Asia. And then what do we read at the end of every letter? And let him who hath an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, plural. This message was to echo out of Asia to the church worldwide and even into our day. And the word comes to us. We've got to get the vision out of the one whose voice is like many waters, who's got all ability and all authority. 
Here's the final thought then of that. John is ordered by Jesus to write a book. What a calling. What a commission. He's 90 years old. But there's still some life in the old horse. And he's going to serve Jesus some more. In fact, this is probably one of the greatest tasks that John has ever been given, age 90. And the scene moves from worship to work. The scene moves from worship to work. It always does. When you are truly overcome by Christ's majesty, when you are truly overtaken by Christ's mercy, you will be overwhelmed with the desire to do Christ's ministry. Worship must never become an end in itself. Why do we come here? Because we're commanded to. We come together because we have a proper understanding of who he is. We love him. We love who he is. We love what he's done for us. His cross is our treasure. His forgiveness is our possession. We come together to worship him. Now we leave. What? What to do? To serve. Overwhelmed by his majesty and his mercy, we now are overtaken by ministry. Worship always turns to work. That's the mistake that John actually and Peter and James made back in John in Matthew 17. They're up on the mountain, the inner circle of the disciples. Jesus' glory begins to shine through. There's this transfiguration. They see something of what John would later see 60 years later, full bore, full blown. And what does Peter say? You know, you, know, you can't stop Peter putting his foot in his mouth. And he says, let's build some booths here and worship. Let's stay up here. I like this. I don't want to go back down there. What's happening down in the valley? Read Matthew 17 later on. The disciples are down there struggling with demonic activity. A woman has come whose child is demon-possessed. They can't exercise the demon because they're weak. They're up on the mountaintop. Jesus says, no, we're not staying here. This vision should capture you. Let's go down into the valley and share it and bring my power to bear upon people's lives. And that's exactly what happens. Worship strengthens us so that God might send us in dependence upon him to impact a world without Christ. Worship must never become a cul-de-sac. Worship must lead to work. It will produce godliness. It will change our characters as we change the culture. Maybe you watched it in 1971, the Apollo 15 mission. It went down in the annals of space exploration, David Scott, James Irwin. It was a three-day deal. They landed on the surface of the moon with their spacecraft Falcon, and they proceeded to set some unimaginable records. They covered 17.4 miles of the moon's surface. They spent almost 18 hours of 66 hours on the very surface of the moon and outside their lunar module. This was a groundbreaking deal for NASA. And these guys were sure of virtual deification when they got home. They listen to these words, but after piloting his spacecraft a quarter of a million miles back to planet Earth, James Irwin said this, quote, as I was returning to the Earth, I realized that I was a servant, not a celebrity. So I am here as God's servant on planet Earth to share what I've experienced that others might know the glory of God. See, when you get overwhelmed by God's glory, it's not about who's celebrity, who's first. 
The last shall be first. It's about being servants to the one who made it all, made us for his own glory. And we see that in the life of John. John, don't fear. Write what you've seen and talk of what you've heard. In his book, Psalm Storm says this on the seven churches, and I recommended that book. Here's what he said. The greatness of a church is not measured by its membership role, by its budgetary prowess, but by the size of its savior. Faithfully honored, passionately praised, and confidently trusted. He went on to say, the big church. What's a big church? Is it a church of 2,000 people with a $5 million budget? Here's what he says. The big church is any church that boasts in a big God. We can be a big church here, even if we don't grow one more member, so long as we boast of a big God. But I think when you boast of a big God, you grow because people are attracted to the afterglow of lives changed in the presence of someone so magnificent and so merciful. God, we thank you for this glorious vision given to John, that John might give it to your servants, us. Oh God, we mourn a mangled Christ in our culture, a patchwork quilt of little thoughts about him. He's a remarkable man, but he's a mere man. He's a subject of fascination, but he's not the object of adoration. But, oh God, we understand who he is, glorious, risen, reigning, judging, coming, calling us to serve. Oh, may we have no small thoughts of him. May we be a big church that proclaims and preaches a big God. And everybody said, Amen. When our idea of Christ expands, so does our heart to serve Him. And we'll continue to explore that subject on Know the Truth when Philip DeCourcy continues to teach from Revelation. Today's lesson is titled Holy Terror. It's part of a series Philip's called You've Got Mail. And if you've missed any portion and would like to catch up, remember you can listen online at ktt.org or on the KTT app or podcast. Just search your mobile device for Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. Well, as you may know, Know the Truth is a nonprofit organization. We depend on the faithful giving of our listeners to continue serving you over the air. And one of the ways you can ensure our ongoing ministry is by giving a monthly donation as a Truth Ambassador. You can automate your donation by phone or online. Call 888-644-8811 or online go to ktt.org. You can also write to Know the Truth, Post Office Box 30250, Anaheim Hills, California, 92809. And as a token of our appreciation for your monthly gift or your gift of any amount to know the truth, we'll send you the book, Authentic Influencer, The Barnabas Way of Shaping Lives for Jesus by Jonathan Murphy. By studying the life of Barnabas, we see how he influenced the world for Christ in practical and doable ways. And this book highlights 15 key principles that emerge from Barnabas that are relevant, practical, and customizable to every believer and they'll encourage readers to shape our world for Jesus, beginning with a whoever happens to be close by. Request your copy today with a gift of any amount. Call 888-644-8811 or give online at ktt.org. And if you've never reached out to us before, we want to welcome you with an encouraging devotional from Pastor Philip called Resting in God's Faithfulness. 
This devotional calls believers to embrace God's faithfulness to remain steadfast in all stages of life and is illustrated through poignant stories and backed by ample scripture for further meditation and study. Ask for it when you call 888-644-8811 or visit ktt.org. Well, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Join us again next time for more clear and convicting Bible teaching from Philip DeCourcy. That will be next time right here on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free.